Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Making partner. It's every professional's dream, but what are the financial risks? More and more of us are cashing in valuable final salary pensions. The FT's Josephine Cumbo gives her take on the latest stats. And $100 oil. Could investors in the black stuff be in for some serious upside? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's news in downloadable form. Lawyers, accountants, general practitioners, veterinary surgeons, hedge fund bosses, public relations managers and many other professionals can become partners or part owners of their practices or firms. But the high rewards from profit shares must be balanced against significant financial risks, including the possibility that it could all end in failure. I'm joined by Lindsay Cook, who wrote about this issue on the cover of FT Money last week. Welcome, Lindsay. Good morning. So becoming a partner requires a significant upfront investment. But like any investment, people do this in the hope that great rewards can be theirs in the future. So how much will you need to buy in? Well, it starts at about 50000 but that's not all, because often there are further payments over the next 10 years. And the big magic circle companies require quite a bit more. It's a long-term investment, and initially the income may go down. People lose their pension rights in as much as they no longer have an employer, because they become self-employed, they no longer have an employer to pay a contribution to their pension. So it's a really big step from being a salaried employee, PAYE, to becoming a part owner of the firm, but albeit one with huge financial um, risks that you're exposed to, as you were were just, just detailing. But Surely the temptation of having that fat profit share instead of a paltry salary is enough to push most people over the line. I think you have to do the research because in the early years, junior partners get far less. There's a lockstep, so you get far less. You earn points as the years go by. So it could be seen by some of the junior partners that they're doing all the work. They brought new money into the uh, partnership doing all the work and they're getting a lot less. Some companies even have performance indicators for their junior partners so they don't get the riches that they're promised. Some might even feel that they're there as a funder of the business that might need it more than um, is clear from the outset. So you have to do a lot of research. You need an advisor. You need to talk to friendly partners If you're a woman, that's even more important Mm. because the um, contract, 
the uh, membership agreement won't necessarily have maternity leave because many of these have been written years ago. You've got to work out, find how well the organisation will help you. Will it help you with um, flexible working? Does it have a retirement date that is fixed in stone? All sorts of things. And what other risks do potential partners need to add in to the equation? It's not just about your personal finances, it's also about the firm's finances. It is. You need to look at the return on capital that it is producing. You have to go through their accounts and look if they are spending more on building costs or salaried employees than they're bringing in in revenue, if their fee income is declining... The Solicitors Regulation Authority actually fined a number of solicitors earlier this year for allowing um, their firm to draw more in profits than they were making. And Mm. they also, in a report three years ago, warned that there were quite a number of companies doing this as a matter of course. Now, if you've got great reserves... It may be something you can do in a year when you're moving offices or something like that. But you really need to look at look at it like a business and get if you don't have a business, I get somebody else to check it out for you. And one thing um, I enjoyed reading about in your article was the things that can happen to draw on those funds, which you might think are coming to you as part of the profit share when another partner retires, because effectively their share has to be paid back. Absolutely. It's usually paid over two or three years because the amount, if you're an established partner in a profitable company, you're going to get quite a whack of money at the end. So you may get it over two or three years. But it could be, if you've got quite a few oldies in your company, that they look for 10 or 15 new partners to actually fund the the exiting people. Well, thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook, um, our Money Mentor columnist. If you'd like to read Lindsay's um, feature all about the financial risks and rewards of becoming a partner, you can do that on our website, ft.com slash money. The amount of money flowing out of final salary pension schemes more than doubled last year, according to new data released this week by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. Those cashing in can certainly receive dazzling sums, but will they later regret giving up the certainty of an annual index-linked income in retirement? Josephine Cumbo, the FT's pension correspondent, joins me now in the studio to discuss. Welcome, Jo. So how much money has been transferred out? Well, last year, a whopping £21 was transferred out of defined benefit schemes, which, as you said, was more than double the £7.9 transferred out in 2016. In terms of actual numbers of individuals transferring, last year there were 92,000 people giving up their final salary or defined benefit pensions, or a 50% increase on the year before. So what's driving this trend? There's two key things driving this trend. The first is, as you mentioned, dazzling lump sum offers. When you have a defined benefit pension, it's packaged up as an income, you get a spousal benefit, etc. But when you want to transfer that out, what the pension scheme will do will convert that benefit into a cash lump sum. Now, about four years ago, the typical amount that you would get off an offer for the cash lump sum was about 20 times your expected income. What we've seen in recent years is that expected income, that commutation factor, as they call it in the technical speak, has risen to about 35 to 40 
times uh, pension income. So this has resulted in people getting offers of six figures, uh, even life-changing amounts to transfer out their defined benefit pensions, which has proved irresistible to many people. So they've been transferring, driven by these large offers. And what's behind those, those increases is this technically speaking, that when interest rates are low, that has this side effect, very simply, of inflating offers for people to transfer out their pensions. That's very simply how it's worked. So there's the first factor of very big uh, lump sums, record high lump sums, which have proved very attractive to people. And the second factor has been the pension freedoms. I'm sure many people have heard about these new changes that came in in 2015, which have given people more flexibility outside of a final salary pension, but you have to move your money to a DC pension. You transfer it to a DC pension, a defined contribution pension, which is the same pension wrapper. From age 55, you can take that money as a lump sum or as and when you wish, and it's even more attractive to pass on that pot to your children. So those are the two key factors which have been driving transfers. Well, should this worry the regulator. This is an awful lot of people now who are being dazzled by the lump sums, as you say. Now, they're giving up quite a valuable thing, the certainty of an income in retirement. Every year that they live, they'll get this lump sum, and that's to be weighed up against having a big pot of money that they'll then have to manage um, as an investment or pay somebody to manage for them. Well, since the news broke about this big jump in in transfers, a lot of people have come out and said, yes, the regulator should be alarmed about this because the regulator's position remains that most people are better off keeping their valuable final salary pensions, which you said is protected and will deliver a guaranteed income. So there are concerns that there might be some instances of mis-selling going on in the market. Now, if you've got a pension pot that is worth, or a DB fund worth more than £30,000, which most people will have, Mm. their offers are much... Especially with the 40 times Absolutely, much bigger. More common is around £250,000 is a typical offer, minimum, basically. You need to get advice. You need to go to a professional and get a recommendation uh, on on whether this is a good idea for you. Now, that's a safeguard because the regulator is still thinks it's most people shouldn't give up their pension. So what's there is a lot of, to be concerned about in terms of the increased rise in transfers. The regulator is currently looking at the market. It's probing to see whether advice has been good enough. But unfortunately, last year it reviewed a number of cases and found that half of the cases that it reviewed, the advice wasn't suitable. So there are problems out in the market. Well, a story that will no doubt run and run, because, of course, once you've transferred your final salary pension, there is no way of getting the money back in. Well, thanks very much there to Josephine Cumbe, the FT Pensions Correspondent. You can read more on this story on ft.com slash money. And please join me in congratulating Jo on her triumph at the Headline Money Awards last week, where she was voted Pensions Journalist of the Year for the second time running. Finally, analysts have been speculating yet again, that the price of oil could yet break through the $100 a barrel barrier. The price of the black stuff has certainly surged since the beginning of this year. Joining me to discuss why is our adventurous investor, David Stevenson. Welcome back, David. Hello, okay. Hi. So tell us briefly, what is it that's making the oil price surge? There are many reasons. Yeah, there's no one particular reason. Geopolitical risk is is never that far away from um, the oil price. 
So obviously concerns about Iran are weighing on investors' mind because, of course, if the U.S. sanctions, well, increases sanctions on Iran, that takes potentially takes some Iranian supply out of the main mass market. There's also concern about, frankly, just, it's just global growth. I mean, that, that, I think it's a really interesting story. There's, it's just a lot more global growth than everybody expected. And that's feeding through particularly from emerging markets, uh, slightly less so from developed markets, but emerging markets and demand for oil. But I think the other more interesting thing is, is that oil, we tend to get very fixated on the kind of big structural factors, you know, there are enough investment going in, you know, geopolitical risk. But actually, quite a lot of it's just to do with stuff at the margins. So classic example is Venezuela is currently going through something of a, how can I put it politely, meltdown. And to the point where actually a lot of their oil workers can barely have enough food to actually carry on working. And that's affecting supply. And those margins don't sound very much. So I think it's something like from about 1.9 million barrels of oil per day down to 1.4. doesn't sound very much, but you take out half a million or a million there, or there's a supply outage, stuff at the margins that can make a big difference on both sides. So if you get a lot more unconventional oil and gas from America, that's an, ex- that's an extra increasing supply. But you have to look at the margins of stuff. And the margins at the moment suggest that oil supplies are tightening, inventories are tight- tightening, and that's pushing prices up. And also, let's not forget that OPEC is doing its best to push up the oil price. So, price of Brent crude, which is the international benchmark, was touching one of them, a, one of them was touching eighty dollars a barrel um, mm. on Friday. And mm. you talk about in your column this week a report that came out from a firm of analysts really making a, a strong case for oil getting past a hundred dollars a barrel. So, yeah. what's your crystal ball? As the adventurous investor telling you, <laughs> murky. So. Uh, and they weren't the only ones. There's a big American investment bank have also predicted that uh, prices go up to 100 bucks. Uh, the arguments, I think, are not, they're not bad, actually. They're, they sound pretty strong. You know, it's, again, these arguments about what happens at the margin. It's, um, the other thing that's also gone on is that when oil prices really created and went below 40 bucks, a lot of oil companies basically shuttered their CapEx expenditure programs and stopped developing um, some oil fields. And, and that has a knock-on effect. You just have to accept that big industries like oil and mining, they have a kind of very long lag time in how they react to things. And that, th- that flows through into their capital expenditure programs. And if they don't spend a lot of money, they don't have a lot of extra capacity when the demand picks up. And that's, that's also still very much kicking around. So there's lots of factors that are lurking around. And I think the argument saying that oil could stay above 70 or 80 bucks a, a barrel looks quite strong for the next year or two, assuming that global growth continues in its relatively strong state at the moment. That's the big assumption. None of us can know what will happen. I myself am not convinced that oil will go to 100 bucks for the simple reason that I think it would, it would, it would concern the inflation hawks. You might see interest rates rise more sharply in the US. And I think particularly the Saudis are mindful that they're doing well at the moment. They're making a lot of money from oil. They really can't afford uh, to effectively precipitate a global recession by pushing prices up too sharply. And then they'll see their revenues go back and they'll have their problems with discipline again. So uh, uh, my, my hunch is that we probably won't see oil up to 100 bucks, but you could certainly see oil staying above its putative range, which I always thought was likely about 40 to 60, could stay more in the 60 to 80 range. The other big unknowable is what happens with uh, the U.S. unconventional oil gas shale people mm. drilling out the Permian Basin, the Bakken Basin. 
And they're, I mean, they are just, they're, they're mincing it at the moment because <laughs> this is great news for them. Anything, frankly, above 50, 55 bucks a barrel is great news for them. And the good news, I suppose, on one respect is, is that they don't seem to be going completely ballistic in just turning out, bringing out loads of new drilling rigs and just, you know, pumping all out of every single nook and crannis. They're being quite careful about capital discipline. And, and that's feeding through into the profit margins. But who knows what will happen there? It, we could see a gusher of capital come in, output radically increase. But you're probably not like to see the effect of that on all market for maybe for another 12 months. Okay, well, lots of things to consider there. Um, most notably, perhaps for most normal people in Britain, what the prices are going to do at the petrol pump yeah, in the near future. Sadly. But as an investor... How could one play this trend? The big oil companies have certainly surged back as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think a lot of investors just basically buy the likes of, you know, Raw Dutch Shell, BP, you know, ExxonMobil. And no, 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 they're not, they're not bad ideas. They're, they're pretty yeah, good ideas. Or, or, or a lot of more kind of stock picker orientated investors buy the mid cap stuff, you know, the, the companies that are in the E&P space, as traditionally called. And so you've seen the share price of outfits like Premier Oil shoot up. I mean, I watch Premier Oil very carefully. It's one of the biggest producers in the North Sea. It has other outfits as well. Enquest is a similar story, both listed on the London stock market. And their shares have really shot up because they're effectively leveraged plays. But the problem you've got with them is they're taking idiosyncratic stock risk. It sounds a complicated term. But what you're, you're basically betting on the company management to make the right decisions. It's not just the price, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether or not they got the financial structure wrong. And that can go badly wrong in some cases. So even the really... We don't, you don't have to be reminded of what happened at BP. And even the really biggest companies can make bad strategic calls and they can invest too much money in the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it seems to me to a, a pooled approach is a better idea. The other thing that's kicking around here is that a lot of people invest increasingly in sectors to get the dividend flow because Royal Dutch Shell... And BP is probably going to restart its dividend. These are quite strong divvy payers. And it strikes me that going a more diversified approach, which is investing in a pool of energy companies, both mid and large cap, is a more sensible way of doing it, especially if you're after an income. Thanks very much, David. And just to add, as I'm sure all listeners know, the podcast does discuss investment ideas, but it's absolutely not an endorsement of any of the securities discussed, nor does it constitute investment advice. If you need advice, go and find an independent advisor. Well, thanks for joining us. To read David's column, you can see the FT Money section inside Saturday's FT Weekend newspaper or go online now to ft.com slash money. That's all from the FT Money show this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us money at ft.com or tweet us a message at ftmoney. We will be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.